I want to say again a welcome to those of you who've just arrived in the last few minutes. It's great to be together and also, of course, those of you who are tuning in via the live stream. We are approaching the very end of this gospel that we have sought to take apart and understand and study with great care for many, many months now. And in that pursuit, we've been really seeking to know Christ better. And with the understanding, of course, that to see Jesus is to see who God is. This is the reason for which he came, is to reveal the Father. And I want to read to you then what I think will be the second to last section of this gospel. We're going to pick up from Mark chapter 15 and the 40th verse of that chapter. And we'll read through just to the beginning of the 16th chapter. And recall, of course, that what has just taken place is that Jesus has just died upon the cross. And that the centurion, in witnessing the death of the Lord Jesus, has testified and declared, truly this was the Son of God. There was something in him or something emanating from him that brought about a kind of conviction and a certainty, even in the heart of that Gentile, the first fruit of what was to come. But nevertheless, despite that slight optimism that we see there, we have to recall this is a moment of darkness. This is a moment of that time between the cross and the resurrection, the darkest days in the history of the world. And this is where we pick up the story. It says in Mark 15, verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. These are the moments then between the, the cross and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and what we know is to come, his resurrection from the dead. And it, there would be moments that might otherwise be quite easy to skip over just because of the two great pillars of those events around those three days, the death and the resurrection. But I want to ask the question, why are they here? And I think that it's a significant thing that so much space is being given to these quite uh, tangential characters to the story of Christ's life. Joseph of Arimathea only appears here. And... I think that one of the reasons why these verses are here is because of God and his sovereignty wants to give us a window into 
the beauty of the devotion that we see coming from these, some of them long-term disciples, and I think for Joseph, a kind of would-be disciple of Jesus. God is giving us a window into this theme then of discipleship, and particularly as it expresses itself in their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to ask me then, look, over the, over the many weeks that we've been exploring this gospel, what, what is it that we've been seeking to learn about? And really it boils down to two things. The primary thing is that we've wanted to see Jesus himself. And to understand that in looking at Christ, we see the portrait of God. That he is God made visible. That he is God in human flesh. And it always begins with seeing who God is. Transformation always begins there. But then the reflexive result of that is the change that takes place within us. These are the two things that always walk in a kind of harmony in Scripture. That there is on the one hand revelation as God speaks and reveals himself to us. And then there's a response as you and I are impacted by and changed by the insight into and the knowledge of who God is. This is the Christian life. It's always the harmony of these two experiences going on in your life. Deeper revelation and then the response, the transformation. Or if John Piper puts it, seeing and then savoring. When you see who God is, then you begin to cherish and savor who God is. Or you can think of it as learning about him and then learning to live in the ways that he's called us to. And these are the two great themes that have been intertwined all the way through the gospel. We've seen who Christ is, and we've, we've seen him in all kinds of different circumstances and the, through his own teaching. But we then are, then are called to reflect upon ourselves as a kind of reflexive response to the insight in who, who God is, which is the theme of discipleship that comes through. Essentially, the, then it is those two things. Who is Christ? Who is God? And what is a disciple? How are we called to live in the light of our understanding of who God is? And for me, these verses capture this second theme of what is a disciple what is our response to christ we've touched on this so many times as we've walked through this gospel and been impacted and changed and convicted challenged and we come to this theme one last time in the gospel of mark through the lens of these people and their devotion to christ these are precious and unique moments Unrepeatable moments, really. We see through the lives of these disciples their faith and commitment. We see their, their love and adoration of the Lord. But we see all this happening in the context of what is the worst possible circumstances. I don't think, as I said, that there could be any darker days in the history of the world than those days between the cross and the resurrection when the Son of God was a corpse dead and buried in the ground. And therefore, it seems to me even more poignant when you're asking the question of what is a disciple and what is the devotion to which we're called. It seems all the more poignant that these people embody these things in the midst of their experience of dejection, depression, the despondency that would have clothed them in those few days. There's a real weight to that, therefore. It's one thing, isn't it, to consider discipleship in the thrill and the rush and the wonderful experiences that God allows us to go through. It's another thing altogether to consider what it is to follow Jesus when you're in the darkness like they were on these few days. And this is why I'm so interested in this.
What is a disciple then? What can they teach us about devotion to Jesus? And the three words that capture really sum up the entire gospel message on that theme, but come through beautifully in these sections that we just read. And those words are faith, death, and love. Let's deal with faith, first of all. Here's how I want to define what we're seeing here. That discipleship to Jesus is an unwavering commitment to him. A loyalty. A gritty determination to cling on to Christ. That is faith. It is a commitment, an unwavering commitment to him. Now, Jesus has been calling for this. All through the gospel accounts of the life of Christ and through his teaching, he has been calling for this. And he's met with all kinds of mixed responses from different kinds of people. He keeps summoning people to this high level of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And some of them want it. Others struggle with this. There's a, there's a moment in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is interacting with different people who are considering discipleship to Jesus. But it seems that they, they, they're stumbling or falling short at the sacrifices that are involved. Like the fact that he's homeless. And there's particularly a couple of verses stand out to me where it says that someone said to him, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's the teaching of Christ. The teaching of Christ is that to follow him is an absolute devotion to him, a commitment to him. That is single-minded and eager and zealous in its pursuit of him. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. He wanted people to follow him with eagerness and devotion. It's the very thing which, of course, the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, he fell short at this. You know this story, and I'm just trying to remind you and recapitulate for you some of the teachings that we've been exposed to over the many weeks. You saw how the rich young man came to Jesus and said to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, follow these commandments. He says, I followed those. And then Jesus says to him these words. He says, go. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. That's it, isn't it? In a nutshell. Follow me. Be committed to me. Cling on to me. Take hold of me. And it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. If there's one verse that captures for me in the whole of the gospel what Jesus, the ethos of Christ's call, his summons, his demand of you, it's this one in Mark chapter 8. Where he said that calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the theme then which we keep discovering. That Jesus makes this absolute demand. He says that to be my follower is to commit to me. And to have this unwavering commitment to the Lord. But now, here in these moments after Jesus has died, we discover this strange and surprising thing. Which is that the twelve apostles, the men who Jesus has particularly earmarked to be his his ambassadors in the world to carry his message. They vanished off the scene. This despite the fact that you you encounter them at various points in the Gospels boasting about their commitment to Jesus. Peter says to him just after Jesus had challenged the rich young man, Peter says, look, we've left everything to follow you. 
And you can feel this kind of swell of, of, of pride, really, in the way he's speaking. And how at the, the Last Supper before Jesus is crucified, he says, you'll all abandon me. And Peter says, not I. And they all agreed with Peter. They said, none of, you know, they all agreed. None of them would abandon Jesus. But here at this moment, after Christ has been crucified, where are they? They've all vanished off the scene, completely disappeared. But we see this theme coming through of this commitment to the Lord. Surprisingly, through the women who were at the periphery of discipleship in Christ's life. You see it here with these women who are named as Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. Mark is telling us that they were there, he says, looking on from a distance. And then in, in chapter 16, how, or the end of chapter 17, just as Jesus is buried, he, he reminds us about them again. He says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. I think this is, there's a real power and poignancy to this. When everyone else has run away, these women are clinging to Christ. It's one of the things, by the way, that has so shaken people's concept of the role of women within the church, is that they're so exalted in the life of Jesus, and that he praises them for their acts of devotion, that they're there, seen to be the ones who are most committed to him, even in this darkest moments. And also, I'd say it's a proof of the authenticity of these stories. If anyone's going to ask themselves, look, how can we believe any of this stuff? That Christ died and that he rose from the dead three days later. The great question is, well, who would make this stuff up? I mean, Peter and Mark, the sources for this gospel. Peter doesn't paint himself in a great light, does he? He, like the other disciples, have vanished off the scene. And these women, these unlikely candidates for heroism in the Greek or the early first century mindset, they're the heroes that come through. They're the ones who are committed to Christ and clinging to him even in these dark moments, these dark days. What form does their commitment take? It's not the aggressive and arrogant form of naked ambition that we've seen in the likes of James and John. Do you remember how they made this bizarre request of Jesus? It's laughable when you look at it from the outside until you honestly acknowledge that we all nurture these kinds of ugly thoughts in our hearts. But how they say to him in Mark 10, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. The audacity of it, right? The women don't exhibit any of this in their discipleship to Jesus. Neither are they like Peter, full of that erratic emotionalism. One minute he's all in, jumping out to walk onto water. The next minute he's cowering in a corner, frightened of the servant girl in the court, in the, uh, the, 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 the precincts around the high priest's home as Jesus is on trial. We're not seeing these kind of responses in the women. What we're seeing, rather, is something much more steady, something much more selfless. This is what I mean when I describe that what God is showing us here about real discipleship is this, this word faith. It's this unwavering commitment to the Lord. And he tells us in verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
What are we seeing then about this faith and this commitment? One thing is that it is totally unwavering. They've been with him throughout the entirety of his ministry, from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, which is basically a summary of Christ's three years. It's unwavering. It's marked by an obedience. When Mark just says that they were, they'd followed him, this is technical language. It's the language that describes discipleship. Following Jesus is not just literally physically walking behind him. It's more than that. It's wanting to imitate him. It's wanting to listen attentively to his teaching and imbibe it into your own life so that you live it out and become an imitator of Christ. They've been committed to him and they've obediently followed him. And most of all, they've been totally focused upon him. You see how Mark tells us that they ministered to him. Their definition of discipleship wasn't about themselves in the way that you've seen with James and John in particular. It was about the Lord. It was about their devotion and their commitment to him. Friends, what I'm trying to help you to see is that as we, as we kind of sum up this, this theme of discipleship in the gospel, God is giving us a window into what he delights in by drawing attention to these women at the end of this, this story. And the question you need to ask yourself is, what is your commitment to the Lord like? Are you flaky? Flighty, up and down, erratic, in and out, hot and cold. Christ wants this faith that is marked by this steadiness, this grit, this devotion that clings on to Christ. We see it in such a beautiful way in the lives of these women. Faith is one word. Here's my second word that sums up discipleship to Jesus in the gospel. It's the word death. Here's what I mean. That discipleship to Jesus is again and again revealed to be a death to yourself so that you can gain something better. And at some point, this is the thing that every person who who considers following Christ has to reckon with and then reckon with repeatedly in the life that follows, that a disciple always has to reckon with great cost and that they have to come take account of the fact that you must lose something or even lose everything in order to gain the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, again, how Christ defined what it means to follow him. When he said in, in Mark chapter 8, that the, the Son of Man must suffer many things, And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is how Christ defined discipleship. You want to walk in my steps? You want to come after me? You have to die. It's what we see modeled in the lives of some of the great disciples in the New Testament. I think about John the Baptist and Paul. What does John the Baptist say? When he sees all the crowds leaving him to go to Jesus and the disciples come around him and say, aren't you bothered by this? He says, he must increase, I must decrease. This is death to yourself, isn't it? Christ be magnified, I want to be put down. It's not about me, it's about him. It's the same thing you see coming through in in the life of the Apostle Paul, that great, devoted, passionate Christ follower. You want to understand the heart of that man? You want to understand the secret to his spirituality? 
I don't think you can go to any better place than Philippians 3, where he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's it, friends. The disciple of Christ is someone who makes a calculation and understands that ultimately to possess Christ is better than anything else you can possess on earth. That you'll therefore let go of all things. What do you lose when you follow him? You lose potentially respectability. Again, I can draw your attention to the life of Paul himself. He said things like this. He said, we are fools for Christ's sake. An amazing, that's in 1 Corinthians 4, but there's an amazing example of that in Paul, when Paul's on trial towards the end of the book of Acts and he's dragged before Festus, one of the Roman governors. And in giving testimony to his commitment and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, Festus stops him and says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So for Paul, one of the things that he had to reckon with was that he would lose respectability. That people would regard him as insane, demented, mad, completely crazy for giving his life to this, this uh, Jewish figure, Jesus. You can lose respectability. You can lose your safety. Do you remember how in Mark chapter 13, Jesus said, and he, and, and he says this many times, by the way, in his teaching, when he's teaching his disciples, he says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. You can lose your safety, even sometimes your life, and certainly your autonomy. Take up your cross and die, he says. That means you can no longer govern yourself. Following Christ always involves a loss. This is what I'm trying to say to you. It always involves death. It always involves denial. It always involves a crucifying of self. It has to in order to gain him. A Christian who can't let go is, is not necessarily a Christian at all. This is what we see going on here in the life of this man, Joseph. Again, he's an unlikely character to be praised because he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees are the ones who've just put Christ to death. There has been their impetus to have Christ crucified. He's part of the Sanhedrin, the council that, that accused Christ of blasphemy. But Mark elevates this man and holds him up as an example. Why does he do that? Well, partly because he wants us to see what this man risked and was willing to lose in order to be associated with Jesus. He tells us that he had respect. He says he was Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. We know he's rich as well because of his ownership of this tomb, which was a rare possession to have a carved tomb in in, in which to bury your family. This man has a lot to lose. There's no question about it. And this is why, I don't know if you noticed it, but this is why When Mark is telling us what Joseph did in requesting the body, he said that he was looking for the kingdom of God and he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why was that such a courageous move? Because he had to expose himself to his fellow Pharisees and Sadducees, the council that I am committed to this man. That he had a love for Christ that meant that he would disregard his own reputation. And he had to expose himself to Pilate, who was the judge and executioner of Jesus, as being an associate of Jesus. 
When all the other disciples, this is why the other disciples have run away. They don't want to be associated with him. They don't want to risk being the next one crucified next to him. When Joseph goes and says, can I have the body? I think that this is a profound expression of what Christ has been talking about, which is a willingness to die to yourself in order to gain him. The things that you have to lay on the altar, the reputation, the wealth, the goodwill of others, the respect that you might have in the world. Joseph lays all those things on the altar in order to take the body of Christ, as it were, for himself and say, I want to honor him. Friends, this is the heart of discipleship. It's not just this faith that I've been describing, this commitment to him. It's also the courage that comes as part of that where you say, I'm willing to die. I'm willing to die to myself. I'm willing to die to my desires. I'm willing to die to my ambitions and the things which I've considered precious up to this time. I'll let go of everything that I might gain Christ. Everything is lost in comparison with him. There comes a moment in the life of every person who wants to follow Jesus, and I think also repeated moments in the life of the follower of Christ, when you meet these crunch moments in your life, where it's a binary choice, it's an either or. It's either Christ or this. Joseph met that moment right there and then. He could have just walked away. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to have done. And who knows the impact that this had on his later life. Mark wants us to understand it was a big deal. He took courage and went to Pilate. These are the crunch moments that you face in the Christian life. Where you must take courage and say, I will die to myself. I will take up my cross that I might have him. That I might pursue and and take possession of Christ for myself. This brings me to the last thing. The last word which captures the essence of discipleship beyond the things that I've described, beyond that faith, that commitment, beyond this death to yourself. The last word is this word love, which I want you to understand as a a cherishing, an adoration of the Lord. As we read these accounts of the burial of Jesus, as Something very bittersweet about these moments, aren't there? There's the bitterness of grief. You can feel the heaviness that was surrounding these Christ followers. But through it, the sweetness of expressions of love and adoration for the Lord. If ever you've been through real grief in life, you know how those two things mingle together in a strange way. How, in fact, sadness heightens the sense of love. And the sweetness of love is set in relief against and contrast to the great grief that you feel when something very sad happens in your life. Or lose someone or something similar. I can think of clear moments in my life where I've experienced this. I look back and memories are imprinted on my mind of the tears that come with grief, but also the 
the overwhelming sense of love and affection that's mingled with tears and that the two play together. And I don't want to miss this. That when, and I think this is part of what Mark wants us to see here about these people and their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Joseph. It tells us that he bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. In those days, if you wanted to bury someone, the normal thing to do would be to bury them in a stone ossuary or box. The cheap way. But the wealthier people had these great tombs that they were carved out of the hills. And inside the tomb, you'd find a shelf carved into the wall where you'd lay the body out for it to decompose until only bones remained. And then at some later date, perhaps years later, the bones would be collected and put into a jar in the corner of the cave and the the shelf made available for the next family member who was to die. You can see the affection and the love, therefore, coming through in this Joseph of Arimathea, this man we otherwise don't know, That he says, I I want to honor Christ. He's going into my family tomb where his body can rest in peace. Perhaps he doesn't understand what is yet to come and the predictions Christ made of his own resurrection. But what we can see pulsating through these acts is his love for the Lord. The same is true, isn't it, of the way the women conduct themselves. How they're there at the edge as Christ dies, watching, not willing to walk away from him, committed themselves to him, and yet then they're there watching where he's taken, observant, careful, noting where he's buried. And then we discover them, don't we? How it says that when the Sabbath was passed, they they bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And how on the first day of the week, when the sun has risen, they went to the tomb. Friends, These are precious acts of love. You know how it is when, if you've ever experienced the death of a loved one, we'll go to lavish expense for things which, in and of themselves, don't really serve a purpose. We pay a lot of money for flowers, don't we, to lay it on graves. We pay even more money for coffins that, you know, maybe they'll try and upsell you, but... These things are expensive, whichever way you cut it. And for marble headstones, why? It's, it doesn't benefit the dead person, but it, it's a kind of inevitable outpouring of love and affection. I have to honor their life. I have to honor them. And I think something like this is going on here in the lives of these women. We think particularly of Mary Magdalene, out of whom the Gospels tells us Jesus had cast seven demons. It seems that she lived a very... Um, wayward life until she met Christ and the meeting with Christ had transformed her completely and she felt that she was forever in his debt and we'd encountered her not long before his death when she'd walked into the house and anointed him with oil you see these outpourings of affection and love in the burying of Jesus then why is this important friends it's because I don't want to miss this In fact, I think this is central. That quite apart from every other dimension of what it means to follow Jesus, the courage and the commitment 
and the self-denial and the faith and the grit and the, the perseverance, everything which the New Testament says is true of a disciple, at the heart of them all, don't miss this, that underneath it, the foundation of it, is a love for him. It's the adoration of him. It's the worship and cherishing of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great test. Do you love him above all? Every other aspect of discipleship, I think, flows from that. The person who loves Jesus above all will cling to him in faith. The person who loves him above all will take courage in those moments of crisis in your life where you have to choose Christ or something else. The person who loves him above all will persevere, will have grit, will have resilience, will have determination to keep walking along the road because above, over, through, underneath all of it is this great overwhelming sense that I love him. I adore him. He's worthy of my worship. And I think in these acts, above all, I don't know what was going on in their minds. I don't know to what extent they believed his own testimony about himself, that he was going to rise from the dead. I think there must have been doubt mingled with some grain of faith. Whatever was going on in their minds, I think that the great thing which controlled their actions, which determined that they could not leave him be, was that they loved him. And God honors them for that. He honors them not only in telling their story, but also in the fact that they become the first witnesses of the resurrection, as we'll soon discover. How precious, friends. What does the Lord want above all? He wants you to love his son. He wants you to worship Jesus. This is the invitation to the Christian life. Come and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Come and love him. It's the call to revive the heart that's grown stale and cold. Where is your spirituality these days? Come back to that simple and pure love of the Lord. I want to invite Ramsey and the musicians to come and lead us in a response of worship. But before we sing, or are sung to, I should say, let's bow our heads. How does your life measure up to and compare with the examples of these disciples of Jesus? Are you marked by this unwavering commitment to him, this faith? Does your life exhibit this courage and death to self that says, I choose Christ above all? Or are you even now wrestling with and tempted by a decision where you prefer yourself over Christ? And most important of all, friends, do you love him? Is he precious to you? Do you cherish our Savior? Let's pray. Father, we examine ourselves and discover within ourselves a mixed evidence of our love and commitment to you. 
We thank you for the grace and the mercy which draws us back time and time again. And I pray, Father, that the examples of these committed disciples will be emblazoned on our minds and hearts. But enable us to say, okay, I want to walk that way. I want to commit to the Lord, no matter what. I want to discard my concern for self and respect and reputation. I want to adore you. As we worship the Lord now, I want to encourage you to take a posture of worship. It may be that you feel that you need to kneel before him. It may be that you need to raise your hands or bow your head. But I want to encourage you, friends, that just as these, these precious disciples displayed their commitment to him in such a physical, tangible way. Let's seek to love him also. Let's worship together. Please stand.